You are listening to The Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on Wednesday, October the 18th, what would have been Lucien Petit-Breton's 141st birthday. Petit-Breton, of course, the first man to win two Tours de France, having grown up in Argentina and only discovering cycling when he won a bike in a tombola. My name is Daniel Freeman. I'm the host of this episode in which we'll discover whether tombolas or a bike leasing scheme may secure the future of the world's current number one team, Jumbo Visma. Mainly, we'll be giving our thumbs up or down to the fresh out of the oven 2024 Giro d'Italia route. We'll be hearing about my time in Italy uh, and the Veneto last week. And we will look at the precarious situation some out-of-contract pros, and one in particular, find themselves in at the end of this 2023 road season. Joining me to do all of that is the lion of not Watford, Lionel Burney. Hello, Daniel. Welcome back from... Oh, where are you now? Where are you? Are you back in London? Uh, secret location. Yeah, I've got a wedding to go to in London over the next few days. Um, secret location, one of the biggest yeah. cities in the world. <laughs> yes. And, and also joining us is the house cat of Sawyer uh, in Mallorca in the Balearic Islands. It's ace Eurosport commentator Rob Hatch. Bon How are you, dear. Rob? On my holiday. Semi-holidays now. The road's done. Bit of track and then uh, doing nothing for a month. Sitting there in your Italy number 10 kit, um, a proper Italian national football team jersey. They were wearing Adidas yesterday. When Doesn't they look England, right, does it? Oh. It really jarred with me. Adidas should only be worn by, I don't know, Central European nations. There's something about it that just doesn't sit right with the Azzurri, the Italian national team. Is that the Deodora jersey, that one then, Rob? It's the 1994 one where the gentleman whose name appears on the back of the shirt missed a penalty. Oh, Diana Ross. Yes. <laughs> We're losing. We're losing. It was a chain reaction from there on, wasn't it? <laughs> obscure 30 year old football references. It's a very uh, it's a very nice jersey, Rob, and very apt considering we're going to be talking about the Giro 2024 route in a minute. I should have put my, my Melia Rosa from uh, some point in the late 80s up on the wall. Oh, I didn't yeah. think quickly enough. Never mind. You'll also, have to imagine. Also, also rather apt, Rob, because you said that the name on the back is Baggio. Uh, Roberto Baggio's first team in Italy was Vicenza. He's from that neck of the woods. And we'll be talking about another famous Vicentino, someone else famous from Vicenza, another sporting alumnus from Vicenza later in the pod. Won't we, chaps? Rob, you've been busy commentating. We're going to hear a bit about some of the races you have been commentating on. Um, we're going to speed through a, a news roundup to that end, chaps. And we had the final races of both the Women's and Men's 2023 World Tour this week in southern China, the Tours of Guangxi, the women's race, unfortunately not televised, live again, um, was a one-day race won by the Polish rider Daria Pukilik of Human Powered Health. On the men's side, there were six stages, five of them bunch sprints, one in chronological order. Can you name them, Rob? Not off memory, in chronological no. order. <laughs> Viviani, Milan, Koi, Molano and Koi again. Somewhere in amongst all of that, there was also an uphill finish at Nongla. And that was won by Milan Vada, who would also go on to take the GC and complete his miraculous comeback after nearly losing his life at the Tour of the Basque Country in 2022. Quite proud of myself for not making a tenuous football reference there um, in relation to Milan Vada. 
Also in the Far East at the weekend, we had the Japan Cup. That was won by Rui Costa. That's another football reference. That's another Milan football reference. Um, it was won by Rui Costa, not, not Florentine Rui Costa. football reference either. I've got to yeah. stick up for the viola there. I think it- I think he's really, isn't he um, AC Milan's sporting director now? Anyway, he was won by Rui Costa, the cyclist, not the footballer, not the former footballer. And um, Rui Costa was riding his last race for Antoine Marche. Um, he is rumoured to be going to EF Education first, easy post next season. From the Far East to the West of France, we will go to tell you that also at the weekend, Joshua Tarling and Anna Kiesenhofer were the winners of the men's and women's Chrono des Nations. Tarling beating Remco Avenepoel. The last race I think we'll mention is the Tour of Turkey because we'll get to the season-ending Italian races and races in northeast of Italy later. The Tour of Turkey concluded in Istanbul on Sunday with overall victory for Astana Kazakhstan's Alexei Lutsenko that built largely on his success atop the fearsome, horrendous Baba, Babadaj climb. Babada. Babada. I, did you see that I, one? Did you I, did you watch that stage, Chaps? I, I watched the end of that stage. I don't think I could have had enough time to tune in for the whole climb, given all the other stuff I was doing at the time. It was the longest climb in the world. And I learned afterwards that I went on a holiday just to the other side of Mount Babada when I was a kid, actually, a place called Oludeniz, which is a beautiful sort of lagoon where it meets the sea. And every day there used to be these sort of paragliders coming down. And it turns out they were jumping off Mount Babada. And the chairlift that you see on the stage took a lot of people up there. It's a huge, huge place just outside of a town and called called Fethiye, a beautiful part of the world. So it was nice to see tough racing there. And I hope they keep that climb because it, it produced a, an interest in there. And I, I'd like to see it taken on with a, a big start list. That'd be good, wouldn't it? It would. Uh, although, although it did also, in my mind, to my eyes at least, it sort of underlined the limitations in terms of the spectacle of extremely, extremely hard climbs um, because it was quite exciting, quite intriguing for a few minutes. And then everyone's position sort of became calcified, ossified. They kind of stayed where they were for the remainder of the climb. Um, but it was nice to see for the first time um, a new new sort of name in the pantheon of great European... Is it? Can we? Do we refer to it as European? Politically well, European. It- <laughs> there we go. Um, monster climbs. Anyway, um, Jasper Philipson won four stages there. Also a stage win for Victor Longelotti, the Monegasque rider. Um, former, here comes another football reference, former addict, self-confessed, self-professed addict to the FIFA football video game. Um, he's done some inter- interesting interviews in which he's talked about his addiction to video gaming. Um, I believe the cyclocross season has also started at the weekend, but I'm boycotting that, chaps, as long as there are road races going on. Um, is that fair? No comment. Or will I? You might incur the wrath I meet, of. Will I? Will I meet my Waterloo when? Oh, yeah, you've obviously when, seen enough um, about it happening, then, get, haven't you? Well, yeah, <laughs> I know that Tebow Nice won the men's race and Femke van Empel won the women's yes. race. I'm sure, we'll be talking a lot more about cyclocross in the coming weeks. Finally, we've talked. We have talked already an awful lot over recent weeks about what is going to happen to Jumbo Visma. And above all, who is going to sponsor them in 2024? Well, the Dutch website who first or which first broke the news of their mooted merger with Sudal Quickstep, Vila Flitz, reported a couple of days ago that the team will henceforth be known as Visma Lisa Bike. Oh, no. 
Lisa Bike is Lisa Bike is, would you believe, a bike leasing company owned by the same parent group as Cervelo, that is Pon. Um, that that renaming news has, however, not been confirmed by the team yet. Lisa Bike already appear on their current jersey, don't they? I mean, this is this indicative of the sponsorship crisis in cycling that the world's best team are going to have to rent their bikes race by race. <laughs> do, do they have to do they have to park them neatly back at some kind of docking station at the end of each stage? I I don't know. I mean, I I'm, being, I'm being cards. flippant. <laughs> I'm being uh, flippant, yeah. Can I just say on the part of the commentators union, if you want your team name to be fully pronounced and every single word said, do not choose a sponsor name that long, it's not going to happen in bunch sprints. What is a good sponsor name? Something Rob? that's nice and short. <laughs> Pon. Pon would have been a good sponsor name. Been. Just call the team Pon. It's my Pon. There you go. Um, but yes, no, just I know that some second... Sponsors get quite angry about that, and just to from a technical point of view, it's in, rightly so. Well, it's rightly impossible so, to say the full name always in a bunch sprint, and um, yeah, Lisa Bike is not exactly gonna make that easier, but good luck to them. Shoot, shoot that out of cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of the Cycling Podcast is sponsored by Bravur Watches, a luxury Swedish watch brand created by passionate cyclists. The company was founded by passionate cyclists. They've been riding and following the sport for nearly 30 years, and the watch company came along 10 years ago. And I'm here with the voice of cycling, Rob Hatch. Can you see on my wrist there on our video call? That looks absolutely... It's a Bobby Dazzler, that line. Oh, it's a Bobby Dazzler. Yellow, it's like you're leading the Watch Tour de France there. Oh, funny you should say that, Rob, because the Grand Tour chronographs are a collection of watches inspired by the three Grand Tours. They're all very different designs. I am wearing La Grande Boucle model, which is inspired by the Tour de France's yellow jersey. It's got a very fetching yellow strap there. Now... These are really nice timepieces, and cycling is all about time, isn't it? There's, uh, you know, the clock is ticking from the moment that people cross the start line. Our listeners could use the uh, Bravour watch to check whether it's past 11 o'clock so they can order their cappuccino. <laughs> I've just turned the coffee machine off. It's 11.43, Liner. You've got to <laughs> obey the rules. I tell you what, though, please tell me there's a pink one. Well, have a look on the website, Rob, because the three designs are very distinct. The Giro... The Tour and the Vuelta uh, inspire the three Grand Tour watch designs. You might see these watches on the wrists of a few riders because among the ambassadors for Bravour are Kevin Genietz and Alex Kirsch and Lawrence Narsen. I, I have very little physiologically in common with any World Tour pros, except for the fact I have very spindly little wrists. And, and watches are often a problem for me. The straps don't tend to fit terribly well, but this is the exception. If you can see... I mean, basically, the yellow strap there has got loads of holes in it. It's part of the design. So no matter how skinny your wrist is, you won't fail to find a comfortable fit. Have a look at the website. It's bravowatches.com. There's also a $250 discount if you are a listener to the Cycling Podcast. Use the code CYCLE. We'll put all of those details in the show notes. And if you're going to Ruler Live next month, Bravour will be there from November the 2nd to the 4th, and you'll be able to see the watches, including exclusive previews of some unreleased models. Well, chaps, raga, as they say in Italy, uh, I said the Giro d'Italia 2024 route was fresh out of the oven in the news roundup. 
Rob, what day was that that we found out what the jury was going to be? It was Friday, wasn't it? It was presented at the, something called the Festival of Sports, uh, literally translated, that La Gazzetta now organises in Trento. There was excitement. There's always excitement um, surrounding the Giro route. There are always a lot of rumours. We know roughly what some of the big sort of showcases, showpieces are going to be before the curtain comes back. But Rob, you are going to tell us what we've got in store next May. What does the Giro d'Italia 2024 look like? Well, a bit more espresso, not quite decaffeinato though from the start because they're beginning Venaria Reale and it's a very short stage to Turin. An unusual start to a Giro, potentially though in a positive, exciting and entertaining way. They go up Superga, the 75th anniversary of the Grande Torino air accident. So we start with a commemoration. That's, that's football. Well, we start with that's a commemoration <laughs> to one of the biggest events in Italian football. A rather sad one, but we'll go up Superga. Easier side this time, though. Not the side that we're used to seeing in the Milan-Turin editions that includes the race. Maddalena at the final stage up in the air what it might be same with the next day but we certainly know it won't be a sprint the next day it's Europa already memories of Pantania more recently Tom Dumoulin before we go to Fossano on day three then a sort of mini Sanremo without the distance without the Cipressa without the Poggio but there are the Capi and we finish straight after what I think is Capo Mele the final climb of the day then down to uh, Luca Rapolano Terme and on our way to Perugia. On our way, though, through that, Rapulano Terme includes some gravel sectors, some sterrato sectors. First mountain stage comes after the first TT. TT that Daniel will like to Perugia, of course, 37.2 kilometres with an uphill finish in the beautiful piazza there. Prati di Tivo will bring back memories of Tirreno Adriatico, Nibali, and crucially, the first mention of his name here, Tade Pogaccio, who this route overall cries out. It's a come and get me plea to continue the football analogy. After Prati di Tivo, the first mountain stage in the Apennines, we go to Napoli. It must be a big contract we've got with the city because we are back for the third successive year. The longest stage so far, 206 kilometres, the first 200-kilometre day in the 107th Giro d'Italia. It'll be the 45th stage finish in Naples. Before the rest day, after that, we go to Boca della Selva another uphill day beginning in Pompeii following that yet another visit seems like with every two minutes Francavilla al mare plenty of starts this time a finish then we go into the Muri Marchegiani Fano and then the typical flat stage Riccione to Cento. It's a shame it doesn't have cento kilometri meno because it's 179 kilometres along the flat usually usually it is a sprint Crucially, it's handily placed for for airports at that stage. (laughs) What are you suggesting, Daniel? (laughs) Plenty of sprints until then. And yes, Daniel has a very good point because we could see a lot of big sprinters choosing to ride the opening week and a half, two weeks of the Giro next year. After that, another time trial, adding up to over 70 kilometres of time trialling. And this one's flat as a pancake. 
finishes in Desenzano del Garda. After that, we go into the mountains up on high to Mottolino, which is near Livigno. And the last 25 kilometers or so of this stage are all above 1,800 meters. Keep your eye on this because this Giro seems to have, for me at least, a real lack of classic mountain name finishes, which is the first thing that disappointed me when I looked at it. But something like that, the last 25Ks, almost 2,000 meters or above, is key. We have another rest date. Then we go into German-speaking territory. We're going to the Dolomites, into beautiful, beautiful areas. And leaving Livigno, we go over the Passo dello Stelvio. It's from Bormio, so the slightly shorter side. Descending to Prato and finishing at Santa Cristina di Valgardena. Or, San, do you say Santa Cristina in German or Sankt Cristina? Sankt Cristina in Gröden, I think is the right way to say it. 202 kilometers. And of course, Cimacopi for the 11th time, the Paso dello Stelvio. Day after that, we begin in Sankt Cristina in Gröden and we go to the Paso del Brocon for final mountaintop finish, really. Already stage 17. So this tells you something different about the final week already. No means, though, the final mountain test. After that, another special day for Daniel because we go to Padova, another day that is expected to be the spread. The sprint, I think. On the finish line, well, where the finish line will be yesterday morning, Prato della Valle, which I think, I think is the biggest. It was often sort of named, claimed in the tourist brochures in, to be the biggest piazza in Europe. They like a bit of that, though. We might have to be verified that mm. one. We might have to get the fact checkers on it. Mm. But Padova is beautiful. That square is beautiful. You've seen it recently in the Giro del Veneto, the year it was brought back, actually. Following that, we go uphill again to Sapada and then the big final mountain stage. It's a double shot of Grappa to finish off this Giro d'Italia in the mountains. We go to Bassano il Grappa, but twice up Monte Grappa. It's the descent in the last 10 to 15 years where Nibali took the honours close by. It's where Quintana won in a time trial, a mountain time trial, is of course a site of many military battles down the years as well, an important place in Italian history. And then we've got another of those strange transfers to finish off all the way down south to Roma. 126 kilometres this year, though, without the Ostia start, I think. It's Roma to Roma and the Grande Arrivo for the sixth time in the history Giro d'Italia 107 there you have it 42,900 metres of climbing we know that will change that's all the distance at the minute it sits at 3,321 kilometres gents well, Rob, I'm glad you mentioned the metres of climbing, total metres of climbing. I'll get back to that in a second. Um, just a little sort of correction, clarifications corner. Prato della Valle, I'm looking at a website now, which says it's the sixth biggest piazza in ah. Europe. So it's pretty big. It's pretty darn big um, and very beautiful. Well done, the fact checkers. 42, yes, 42,900 metres of climbing. This is a key statistic because, Rob, when this route was unveiled, I initially was pretty underwhelmed, like you, for various reasons we'll maybe go into in a minute. Um, but there did seem to be something a little bit light, a little bit decaffeinated about it. Um, I couldn't put my finger on exactly what. Then I compared the meters of climbing with previous Giri or the Giri of the last two years. So 42,900 in 2024. This year, there were over 10,000 meters more climbing. 53,626 meters this year. Last year, 52,814 meters of climbing. Didn't 
know quite what to make of this but speaking to various people over the weekend we'll hear from one of them in a couple of minutes um there seems to be a consensus that this is well i think you um, refer to it as a bit of a love letter to Tade pogacar come and get me plea there is the sense there is a suspicion that the Giro d'Italia organizers have toned things down in the hope in an effort to attract some of the big guns who they know will not want to sacrifice the Tour de France. Um, So they're trying to coax people, entice people into attempting this double um, that no one has achieved since Marco Pantani in 1998. Lionel? Yeah, I think at a glance, that does look to be the case. I mean, the thing we know about the Giro is that often they have a lot of stages over 200 kilometers. Here, there's only four stages over 200 kilometers. But it's not just the fact that they break the 200 kilometer barrier, is it? It's that they sometimes have sort of 220, 230. Often they'll have kind of back to back stages. Sometimes the flatter stages will be long, just kind of long slogs in the saddle. Sometimes the transfers look really unwieldy on paper when you look at the map. This looks like a pretty well joined up. Um, route apart from the the transfer to Rome which um, I mean like this year you know I can understand the commercial imperative of finishing in the capital city uh, the, the the kind of the prestige of that but the transfer itself is is kind of needless so it's not just the fact that there's fewer stages over 200 kilometers it's that there are actually quite a few short stages stages of 136 kilometers and 150 kilometers on the opening weekend quite quite short they haven't gone the whole they hog, haven't have gone they? well to short but it's got to stay the the Giro d'Italia hasn't it and I think this is a kind of a, a, a healthy compromise so instead of looking at 210 kilometers in the hills to Fano for example is 183 I mean it just feels like they've just squeezed down a little bit but I do think that all the elements of a Giro are there they've got the billiard table flat stage to Cento which it wouldn't be the Giro without one of those there's a downhill stage to Padova which might just entice a few of the sprinters to stay on for the final week because there will be two sprint opportunities in that final week if you include Rome in that as well the time trialing is interesting the fact that it's in weeks one and week two it isn't kind of looming there in the final week of the race as a sort of you know almost like a a, a cork in the bottle of Prosecco and I think it's well balanced but you're right it hasn't got the real kind of um you know, the, 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 the Giro set piece mountain stages. It seems to me the Stelvio on stage 16 is kind of wasted being so early in the stage. Oh, it's a bit like going, it's a bit like going to El Bully for a bowl of Cheerios. <laughs> um, El Bully, the most famous restaurant or the supposedly the best restaurant in the world for many, many years in Catalonia. Yeah, that that's an unusual one. But the other thing with the Giro is you just never know what the weather will do. So even, you know, even in recent years, you know, the route in the mountains is theoretical, you know, to a great degree, isn't it? If the weather comes in and stages are shortened and climbs are taken out, um, you know, it's all a kind of wish list, more so than the other Grand Tours, really. I think the interesting thing is the really punchy start, um, the climbs of Superga and uh, Madalena on the way into Turin and then Europa, which is a proper climbers finish isn't it as we saw in whatever year it was Daniel 2017 was it 17 yeah it's a proper proper climbers finish but it's also it's a climb that really suits time trialists Mm. as well because it's a it's a sort of what's 12 kilometers is it 12 11 12 kilometers um, about a half hour effort and well as we as we saw that day someone who goes fast very fast and is not too heavy will go very well and with a good team yeah the, the team will get 
half, two thirds of the way up the climb, helping uh, the leaders. I suppose the only negative for me, uh, I think the the, the Milano Sanremo light stage um, with the Capo Mele at the end is nice, but why do they have to go to Andorra? <laughs> <laughs> Obsessed with saving a few bob, everybody at the minute, aren't they? Dear yeah. me. No, that, I can't understand that. that. The, the tax paying Andorra. Uh, Thankfully, somewhere, yeah, somebody's Andorra. paying it. Um, I was like you, Daniel, when I saw it. I, I saw the first three days and I thought, ooh, hello, this is going to be absolutely mm. brilliant. And then I was waiting, I was looking down at the list. I'm thinking, where's the famous finish? Where's the famous mountaintop finish? Where's the sort of, I don't know, I know it's recent, but Zon Colan. Ooh. Where's the Trecime? You know, where, whatever, Colere le Finestre. Where is it all? Or, or Rob, or Rob, rather than something very familiar, something very, very different. Yep. And I didn't. I don't see much of that either. And it's funny. It's a really good point you make, Lionel, as well about the the weather. We spent half the Giro, even when we were live on air, half of these lives kilometer zero to the end speculating about the weather because it's part of the game isn't it with the Giro but what if you have the bad bad weather in a route like this we've got no mountains then this is a danger as well isn't it it is a danger um I should say as well that it was RCS's hope that this Giro d'Italia would take place a week later in fact we suggested last year at the end of the Giro that that would be the case because they wanted the Giro to finish on the same day as the Festa della Repubblica the Italian national holiday and they haven't managed to do that partly because of the Olympics and various other things so it's in its traditional early slot so it is going to be exposed to to that risk that has what's wreaked havoc it wreaked havoc last year with the Giro I hope everyone everyone is better prepared for the conversations which will inevitably happen whether it's the Riders Union the RCS I'm sorry RCS the, the various WhatsApp groups we hear about now yeah, people have got to be realistic and I guess it's like everything is a message to the world at the minute. You know, um, listen, understand, give and take. And that's what's going to happen to us. And it's going to, there's going to have to be proper negotiation, proper understanding of each and everybody's point of view. And, and that's something that, that hasn't happened, has it, down the years until very recently. Chaps, let's hear someone else's verdict on the Giro d'Italia route, shall we? Um, I keep referring to the fact that I was in the Veneto in Italy last week. We're going to hear a bit more about that later. Um, Matt White was also there. Our old friend Matt White, Jaco Alula, head director sportif. I think he's got a change of title for next year. Um, I think he's sort of moving up upstairs to a certain extent. However, um, Matt, always a keen observer of all things Giro d'Italia, always does the Giro d'Italia in the team car. And, well, he had sort reason for cheer reason to celebrate his team did because they just announced the signing the return of ace sprinter Caleb Ewan who is joining the team rejoining the team from Lotto Destiny and also last week curiously curious in its timing very opportune as far as the team were concerned was the announcement that Dylan Kronewegen was all had also renewed his contract with the team. So they're going to have two frontline sprinters next year. Anyway, this was Matt's reaction to the unveiling of the Giro route and also well, a few thoughts on how Ewan and Hunewagen are going to dovetail combine next year. Well, Matt, the Giro d'Italia race that you're very fond of, a race you usually do, the route was announced last week, got it here in front of us. Yep. Um, first, what were your eyes first drawn to when you, when you saw it presented on Friday? Uh some good opportunities for the sprinters which uh, obviously with the uh, with the acquisition of Caleb Ewan uh, it looks pretty exciting the other one is it's not the hardest last week of the Giro that I've seen that's for sure I've seen definitely harder 
last week of the Giro's, which usually it's a tail end heavy race. But it's still it's still a brutal course, and there's a couple of stages that stand out um, that are brutal. And the other thing that stands out is not so many stages over 200 kilometres. You know, usually something aligned with the two, uh, with the Giro is multiple stages in the 220s, 230s, and and they're not this year. So uh, it does change the course a little bit. So you think? Because I remember we talked about this in the Giro last year. I sort of came to you with the the well, the idea that the Giro was broken and they needed more shorter stages. You said you sort of defended it. Um, there there has been a bit of a compromise climb down. There aren't any stages, and well, I think there's one stage is 130 kilometers. There aren't too many really, really short stages, but I think the average stage has sort of gone from 190 to 170. Yeah, that's a start. That's a start, and I think the the hardest stage of the race is only 155, but I think it's got 60k of climbing in it. But um, no, I think uh, it's got something for everyone. It's definitely got something for everyone this year, this year's year. Any thoughts about what your team might do? Or do you have to see the Tour in the Volta first? Yeah, before we make any final decisions, for sure. But um, we'll be going there with a the sprinter, and we'll be definitely going there with a the general classification rider. So we'll nut that out after we see the, the Tour de France route. We've obviously, there's been bits and pieces leaked about around the Tour. Obviously, we've got a uh, last stage time trial in Nice. There's rumours of a stage nine gravel stage. Is it a gravel stage? Is there sections of gravel? Uh, all those sort of details to come out in the, in the next week or two. But um, regardless, you know, your, your real final decisions will probably only be around the, the you know, do you take one more bigger guy, one more climber, all those sort of things. And then, then putting that whole global calendar together over the next month and giving that back out to the riders so they know what they're preparing for in the winter. Is the, you know, the season may finish today, but uh, on this side of the fence it continues for a lot longer. And I guess with two sprinters, two frontline sprinters now, mm. um, you you know for sure already you're going to go to every Grand Tour with a sprinter. Definitely, definitely. And and we've been really clear with the guys uh, of of their goals. They will not be competing against each other for spots on Grand Tours or or races in general. They they know nearly already their race calendar, and uh, they'll be focusing on, on those goals. And the, the two get along well. And uh, it's only a bonus for uh, to have. Someone winning here, someone winning there. And, uh, and at the end of the day, sprinters are the people who give you the most wins. And uh, they're both... And two different stories, you know. Dylan has fitted into the team really well. And uh, I went up and saw him uh, a while ago. And we spoke about Caleb's proposed arrival and how that would affect him or not affect him. And uh, he was really cool with it. And then with Caleb, you know, it's been a pretty frustrating year or two with him. But you know, at the end of the day, he's still young. Uh, he came close to beating Philipson this year at the Tour de France. He, he's got a point to prove, and that's uh, that he is certainly not done as a world-class sprinter. I'm sure he's going to come out with a bang in Australia in January, which is not too far away. Matt, we've seen, particularly I'm thinking of Alpecin de Koenig, they've kind of had two sprint divisions, and they've kind of kept them separate, two different lead-out trains for different sprinters. Um, maybe it's a bit early, but do you already know how you're going to approach that? No, we'll, we will definitely, up until and during the Tour de France, we will have two, uh, two distinct groups. Because, you know, it's all about, with sprinters, it's about timing, it's about relationships. And, you know, at the first half of the year, we'll be keeping uh, Mezgetz and uh, Reinders with uh, Dylan. And then we've got a couple of different combinations, you know, thinking of, off the top of my head, you know, Campbell Stewart and Max Walkshide will be two guys, I would think, around, uh, around Caleb Ewan. And just going back to the Jira for a second, Matt, we were just talking a minute ago about, well... Um, it's how many years is it now? It's 25 years since the last Jira Tour double. Uh, this and, tour. And the closest anyone's come is 
Chris Froome. Uh, you podium both, one one and podiumed another. Um, but it is, yeah, it's been a long time. There is talk of RCS well, certainly courting Pogacar, and they'll probably court everyone, Ringergaard. Um, likelihood of someone being competitive in both, likelihood of someone like Pogacar wanting to do the Giro, do you think? Look, I, I think with those guys as well, what they want and what their sponsors want could be two different stories. You know, someone as robust as, uh, as Primos, yeah, does he want to try the double? Or is that for him too much of a risk? His first time in a long time going in as the sole leader at the Tour de France. Why risk it by doing the Giro next year? I don't know. I'm sure Tade would probably like to have a crack at the Giro, you know. Uh, but I don't know if his sponsors are going to willing to take that gamble with them. Um, yeah, you know, because when you do go all in for the for the Giro, there's a, there's some things that are out of your control, and one is weather. You know, if you get a brutal week last week of the Giro, that does affect how you recover. And the other one is how deep do you have to go to win a Grand Tour, and that. <laughs> No one knows how deep you got to go. Everyone knows it's it's deep, but uh, that sort of damage you can do. Uh, it, it does have a follow-on effect, and that's why you know the, usually the Giro Vuelta is a, a more achievable double than uh, than the Giro Tour. So, chaps, uh, Matt, there pessimistic or sort of dubious about how popular this idea of the going for the double is going to be whether Pogacar might try it um we've we suggested I think last week didn't we was it last week we were talking about the Giro route and the likelihood of Pogacar going we talked about the financial incentives that might be a factor um incidentally his team UAE team Emirates and Machin his director sportiva said they're going to wait until the other Grand Tour routes are announced before they make a decision but I don't think anyone really believes at this stage that Pogacar is going to sacrifice the Tour de France for the Giro and the Vuelta if he goes to the Giro it's going to be with a view to doing the Tour as well um there has to be a point where because I see Pogacar someone who likes to tick off lines on his Palmares he's brilliant at it we've seen him doing different races I think he'll want to win the Giro and he's got to go to the Vuelta sometime so, I don't know. I mean, the Olympics is next year as well. There's just some... I, I don't have a reason for this. I might be completely barking up the wrong tree. But I've had a feeling for the last few weeks that Pogacar will go to the Giro next year. Again, this, I think, increases that likelihood. We've talked about financial incentive as well. And then you look at the tour, maybe choose to be pragmatic and realistic and think, well, maybe if I have a rest, I can win the Olympics and win the Welter as well. Again, I think... Matt White made a very good point that it's not just about what riders want to do, is it? You know, and even if he did want to do that, and even if he is thinking of his own Palmares, he's got to get it past the leadership who I doubt very much, putting my realistic head on, are going to let him miss the Tour de France. But I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like a decent plan for a year, doesn't it? You know, certainly if Vingegaard is, is Vingegaard again at the Tour and things like that. Yeah. They, that team in particular, also has to think about keeping some other riders happy um, in the sense that Ayuso has a career path that's been sketched out for him, which sort of is going to culminate at some point in, well, he's certainly going to hope to be a leader in the Tour de France or the Giro. They've also got Adam Yates. They've got other riders who could potentially win a Giro d'Italia. Well, Almeida, of course. That's four riders they've got to keep happy across three Grand Tours. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're into heavy speculation territory here but I think from the Giro d'Italia's point of view if the big four as I'm now going to keep calling them Pogacar, Evenepoel, Vingegaard and Roglic all go to the Tour de France it does give a fantastic opportunity for somebody else to add a grand tour to 
um, you know their, uh, their 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 career record. And when you look at the the Grand Tour contenders, it's obviously it is into the territory of a, a Joao Almeida or, or an Ayuso or uh, one of the Yates brothers. Um, you know, you, you start looking down the list of Grand Tour contenders, it could be a fantastic opportunity for somebody to, to break through. And Oetgebrooks, for example, you know, a, a real opportunity to go and lead. But of course, that isn't what Mauro Venni and the Giro d'Italia will want. They will want a big star on the start line because people like us start talking about the route being decaffeinated. We might start talking about the start list being decaffeinated if there isn't a real kind of star quality when they all line up for that first stage to Turin. Uh, just before we move on from all things Giro d'Italia, the Giro d'Italia women, as it will be known next year, has had a rebrand. It's now all in-house at RCS. RCS, the owners and organisers of the men's Giro d'Italia, of course, now will organise the women's Giro d'Italia. It will take place as usual in July, but... Uh, they are not in a position yet to unveil or confirm the route. So we'll look out for that in the coming weeks. Uh, Rose Manley and co will be back with an episode of the cycling podcast Femina uh, later on this week. The cycling podcast is supported by science in sport. Science in sport fueled by science. Well, chaps, that completes our discussion of one Giro d'Italia. I embarked on a, a, a bit of a mini Giro d'Italia or a Giro of Northeast Italy of my own last week. Um, I was otherwise engaged, otherwise employed. I should issue a bit of a disclaimer at this point because I was actually, well, something I'd never done before, I don't think. Um, I was actually working on the organisation of some races, some road races, Races organised by a, a sort of a podcast favourite of yesteryear, uh, Filippo Pozzato, the old Italian classics maestro, as many of you may now know. He has become a race organiser and his races, his big sort of showcase week took place last week and it comprised the Giro del Veneto on Wednesday, the Serenissima gravel race on Friday. On Saturday there was a mass partition mass participation social ride, Venetugo, and very catchily titled. And on Sunday, it was what what he considers, well, certainly the jewel in his crown, the Giro, not the Giro, it was the Veneto Classic. And um, those races were won, I should say, by Dorian Godon, won the Giro del Veneto. The Serenissima Gravel was won by Florian, Florian, I'm not speaking French, was Florian Vermeers. And on Sunday, it was Davide Formolo, a local rider from the Veneto region, born near Verona. We were close to Bassano, or we were in Bassano del Grappa. He won on Sunday at the Veneto Classic. Chaps, without too much further ado, should we hear a bit more about my adventures in the Veneto? And let's hear a bit more as well. You're going to hear a bit more from Pippo Pozzato, the race organiser. Also, a couple of clips in here from your commentary, oh Rob, your Eurosport commentary um, over the last few days. You were on duty um, for those races last week. So, yeah, here I am, here Pippo is, here everyone else is in the Veneto last week. The cycling, I think I, we have the one problem in Italy. The problem is the fan is too old. In Italia, some too 
artists. I, I want to I want to try the change of this, attract the, the, the young guys for the party, not not the cyclists. But I wanted uh, doing the, the, the party inside the, the race. And when you, you, you see the cycling, cycling is, is okay. And I want starting for the cycle. I want to change this because when, when, uh, when, the race, when I stay rider, every day I see this problem. It's not possible. The cycling for me is the best sport in the world. But the communication in Italy is very, very old. It's not possible attraction the young guys. I want to change this for attract young guys, only, only, only young, uh, young guys, for 20 or 15 years. About 500 meters ago, Matteo Trentini looks as though he is leading out sprint, having won last year. 500 meters ago in this Giro del Veneto upon the Santuario di Monte Berico. This is a brilliant effort by the man from Azure Desert, and he does it. Dorian Godon all the way to the line. Uh, winner of uh, Brabant's appeal earlier this year, so uh, should have really seen him coming. First, uh, we'll, uh, we'll take a, a glass of wine uh, this evening and uh, to, uh, to share this moment. It's not uh, every day. So. It's better every year because it, now I have the product. It is possible. Uh, this is my product. Before, uh, <laughs> it's only there. Mark Donovan, Q36.5. Well, how close to the front of the line were you when they were asking for volunteers to do a gravel race today? Or was it, is that not how it happened at all? Um, and uh, when, I, when I starting, I think it's only, um, only trend. It's a trend, uh, it's okay, it's good for the communication, but no. After I have seen last, day, last year the World Championship, uh, I think is is the future is not the only trend. I think it's the future for the race because too much rider ex, uh, rider finish the, the the career to professional and starting in, uh, on the gravel. Sprint, uh, I immediately had a feeling that I could uh, could beat him, so yeah, I'm happy it worked out. And uh, finally, uh, what what was the meaning of uh, your gesture to celebrate your victory on the finish line? Like, uh, as if you wanted someone to shut up? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not gonna go deeper into details, but it was in the heat of the moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's not uh, nothing personal. If you look at the, the power file of a day like that, I mean, how crazy would it look? What would it look like? I can tell you. Hi, my Garmin fell off. Well, almost fell off. I managed to catch it. So it was in my back pocket. So I had no idea where I was going from half of the race. It's about four hours, 300 average, 322 normalized. Pretty big day out. Yeah. Every day is Rome, Milan, take the, the, the call, you're doing, doing the, the dinner, the lunch every time with the sponsor. This is my, is my dream, this is my idea. What do you think? It's okay, it's not okay. Now we have Trenitalia is good, Credit Agricole is good, Mercedes is good, UNMIT is good. Three or four 
This is my is my objective. Four years a bit agricole. It's long time because um, so Domenico, we've all read that you don't currently have a contract for next year. Um, does that mean you? it's a strange feeling today that in the corner of your head it could be your last race? Yeah, for sure uh, it's a strange feeling. Uh, I'm not sure that if it's the last race of the season or my career. And, uh, it's not happen hopefully. This is the problem. It's not, it's not simple, but uh, I think it's not impossible. The only problem I have is uh, take too much money. When you have money... The applause begins. The Prosecco corks are about to pop. It's team UAE Emirates. E precede il compagno di squadra, lo svizzero Mark Hirschi per la terza I give uh, all I had on the last kick and luckily could, uh, was enough to just go solo to the line. I hope that the people is, uh, is happy, the rider is happy, the, the public, the journalist is, uh, is happy for the, for the, um, the, the, the race. Uh, io sono contento, i miei ragazzi sono tutti contenti, quindi spero anche la gente da fuori sia stata contenta perché l'idea di fare queste cose è più che altro per la gente per farla divertire. So chaps, I am now, well I've been... <clears throat> off duty for the last two days but i'm still in my uniform um, we were all given well the races are sponsored one of the sponsors is diesel clothing remember them diesel every they were they're very much uh, in on vogue in fashion certainly outside of italy um 15 20 years ago still very much in fashion in italy and a local one of the very very many uh, big local companies native to that region, um, Renzo Rosso, the founder of Diesel. Actually, well, he lays on, he opens the doors of his sort of private farm, Diesel Farm, for the Veneto Classic. And the key, well, one of the key climbs in the Veneto Classic is the Diesel Farm climb. Um, and that was where, well, Filippo Zana looked as though he was making a decisive move on Sunday. And he was eventually caught by Mark Hirschi and Davide Formolo as well, as you saw, Rob, as you commentated on. But uh, I really, well, it was an illuminating week and it's really what's really interesting as you heard there to hear what Filippo Pozzato is trying to do in Italy um, it, it, this is a subject we've talked about a lot over recent years the sort of slow decay and the sad decay really of the Italian um, scene and this is certainly not lost on Filippo Pozzato there are a lot of challenges chaps and um, just working on the race over the last four or five days uh, sort of some of these challenges became kind of clearer in my mind i think i think the main one that's not maybe specific to italy but um is to a certain extent is that italy's sort of economic growth over the last 50 or 60 years was based really on the success and the power of medium-sized manufacturing companies and at a time when sponsoring a cycling team costs maybe 1 million 2 million 3 million a year these were the candidates to 
sponsor teams, sponsor races, and uh, and bankroll. You know everything you need for the sport of cycling to survive and thrive. And what's happened, as we know, over the last ten years, certainly, is that costs have escalated significantly. Whether it's organizing world tour races, organizing pro series races, Veneto Classic is now a pro series race paying riders, rider salaries, it has, it's all escalated at a sort of dizzying speed. And those companies, the companies that when you drive around the Venetor, we saw them, we visited some of them last week, a lot of them involved in cycling, City, the, the car, I'm sorry, the shoe manufacturers, we visited them, Elite to make bottle cages, I could name dozens of them, dozens of them. They are great success stories, but they are medium-sized companies. They're not companies that have 10 million, 15 million, 20 million a year to dedicate to professional cycling. So that is, that's a real issue um, that um, professional cycling in Italy is facing. Another one is just the way the sport, as Filippo says, has been sold, is being sold. And some of the main, the big sort of custodians of the sport in Italy, it's it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that they're not doing a particularly great job and sometimes it's sort of selfish political reasons you know rcs sports um the organizer of the giro d'italia we know their relationship with rcs that who own la gazzetta dello sport so a different sort of branch of the same group their relationship hasn't been good and there have been sort of collateral victims in this kind of power struggle the la gazzetta itself we've talked about it a lot over the last couple of years you know they now have not been they, they sent chiro maybe to some of the tour de france he's the one gazzetta journalist and um, they send maybe two journalists to the giro d'italia when there used to be a whole room in the press room 10 gazzetta journalists and you know to other races besides the giro um, for example filippo's races last week the veneto classic there wasn't any representation for La Gazzetta dello Sport. And this all counts, this all matters because anything that's good for cycling in Italy is good for the Giro and should be good for RCS. But for one reason or another, and often it seems to me from the outside, um, it, it, it is down to sort of political um, friction, hostilities, feuds, uh, rivalries. Um, that is what is ultimately influencing some of these decisions. I would say that's something that I've in experienced and heard about when on my days working for what was Rai Sport then, Rai Television, when I started working on Giro d'Italia. First few years I was working in cycling doing the, the English language feed. <laughs> you could, uh, so many little anecdotes of standing at a coffee machine and such and such has said this and then just looking around at how many people were working on it compared to, to other, let's say, more... Um, Efficient productions, leaner, leaner organisations yeah. elsewhere, certainly. You look at somebody like Flanders Classics, it, it's a fantastically well-streamed operation. You compare that to you know, things like RCS and Rye, it's just a, it's completely different. It's like you're living in a different decade. Um, and in terms of what Filippo's done in bringing the races and bringing a race back in the Giro del Veneto that until a couple of years ago we hadn't seen for a decade or so. The addition of the new race is really exciting as well. I think it's fantastic parkour. I hope that it starts to get a better start list. There's probably got to be a conversation about date that comes into it at some point as well. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, in that little sort of montage we we heard there, I mean, when you heard Filippo's voice, that was a lunch that I sort of arranged with, or helped to arrange with other journalists at La Rosina, which is a famous, it's a sort of mecca of cycling in the Veneto. It's a restaurant um, on, a, on a climb, which the Veneto Classic did on Sunday. Um, he, he went into quite a, de- quite a lot of detail with the journalists and, um, and, and with us about what his efforts to change the date. He, he originally wanted a different date. No other date was available. He still hopes to move the two road races maybe to September. Probably is not going to happen next year, but he, he, he certainly um, wants that to happen in the future. With the gravel race, there's been an issue. The reason it's not part of the UCI World Gravel Series is that one of the sponsors is Campagnolo. Uh, Campagnolo, another company from the Veneto region. And the sponsor of the UCI Gravel Series is Shimano. So there is a, there's a conflict. There's, a, there's an issue there. But again, um, that is something that he wants to, well, to also explore with that race as well. Maybe moving the date to a, a more congenial point in the season yeah i mean this is something i touched on last week about how the calendar has kind of evolved in uh, to to create problems whilst solving other problems Uh, if you think back 20 years there used to be a really strong calendar of italian one-day races leading up to the selection of the italian national team for the world championships uh, i'm talking about this this period after um after the world's moved to the, the later slot so there's a september sometimes even early october slot so there was a real kind of logic to having this series of one-day races and they were very important for the smaller italian domestic teams as well and there was a really strong kind of um, ecosystem in Italian cycling wasn't there when you look at that ecosystem now whilst culturally teams may have some Italian DNA I'm thinking of UAE Team Emirates and Bahrain Victorious especially it it is shrinking every year there's no Italian world tour team there are three Italian UCI pro teams that's Aeolo Cometa Green Project Bardiani and Coratec Sella Italia and as you say Daniel that's kind of you know medium-sized companies are, are, are sponsoring those teams there's no kind of italian superpower and we already have the the races that lead up to il lombardia this kind of little mini series that has evolved over really recently hasn't it the last five or six years that has kind of um, bound together and started to make sense Filippo Pozzato and the Veneto region obviously want to create a new something. If cycling was looking holistically and could put aside the kind of the turf, um, the battles between sponsors and equipment companies and so on, and were to treat the sport in a grown-up way that would serve everybody better, you would have a series of gravel races leading up to the Gravel World Championships and the Serenissima, which from the occasion I've watched it has been really, you know, quite entertaining to watch, uh, would be a part of that. And then there would be a place in that kind of lead-up um, to perhaps to Il Lombardia for the Veneto races. And you can sort of see how it would work. And then when you realise how it would all have to come together and the other sorts of compromises that might have to be made, not just across the Italian calendar, but across the, the, the World Tour and the, um, the, the Pro Series calendar, it just starts to resemble a kind of magic eye picture. You can sort of see a cycling calendar across men's and women's gravel and road that would really make sense and would drive interest leading up to these kind of key peak points of the season being the Grand Tours, the Classics and everything else kind of feeding up to that. But it needs somebody independent to actually look at it understand it from both the historical and cultural and contextual basis 
and look at the future and work out, you know, where are the sort of strong lines of credit geographically, whether that's from uh, regions that want to host cycling events for not just the next two, three years, but for the next 10 years so that things can be built in a sustainable way. And I also think that at the late stage of the season, one of my kind of um, bugbears about it as a spectator is it's just more of the same. We have a stage race, we have another stage race, you know, stage race for sprinters in, in China, stage race in Turkey, everything kind of feels the same. It's very much the kind of the, 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 the fair is packing up and leaving town, isn't it? And trying to kind of keep people's interest. Uh, the gravel races, Serenissima, for example, you know, it looks different. It is different. And I think what cycling has lost, and one of the things that really attracted me to it in the 80s was that uh, at the end of the season, there was almost this kind of silly season of uh, novelty type races, you know, like the Dua Normand, which, uh, I mean, it's not a, not a joke. It's a two up time trial, but riders from different teams can pair up. You know, the Baraki Trophy, the um, the Monduic race in uh, Barcelona, which had a kind of hill climb at the end. Little things that were slightly different. I'm going to be slightly flippant here because Florian and Gianni Vermeer finished first and second in Serenissima, but a two-up time trial of riders with the same name, I think would be great. You could have, just from earlier in the episode, Daniel, I'm I'm already salivating at the prospect of Jonathan Milan and Milan Vida riding together. Um, Geraint Thomas and Tom Thomas Gloag. I don't know. Um, I'll, get on the phone to, I'll get straight, <laughs> straight on the phone to Pippo after this. Um, this is the idea. This is the silver bullet. No, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's, that is a, 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 you know, being flippant. But I do think that what uh, Pozzato and his team have created there, and I mean, there's no conflict of interest, me saying this, because I'm not employed by uh, Pozzato to promote yeah, his event. You haven't, you, haven't got any, you haven't got any diesel sweatshirts. <laughs> I haven't. But I do think that, that this combination of events is how um you know is how to make something economically sustainable so a mass participation ride a gravel race and a couple of road races you know that's kind of an, an a really nice uh, italian menu of uh, of events to sustain some interest at the the tail end of the season and i think there's some lessons there for the uci who have spent a lot of energy this week telling everyone how many eyeballs watch the world championships um in their in their um you know in their pr which is great um but when you kind of look back at it and see the sort of disruption and the kind of the slight sort of unintended consequences of having the world in that slot having all of the different disciplines together some that did get a little bit more light shined on them but some of them were just completely ignored as usual it didn't really you know work in perhaps the way they could have dreamed uh, I do think this, the sport, with all of the hand-wringing about the, you know, the economic uncertainty, the cost of the top riders, the difficulty of hosting races in certain parts of Europe because of just the, the political will waning, the costs escalating, um, it might be time for somebody to take a, a, an overall look at everything, inspired by the little things that are going on, um, like uh, in, in the Veneto and try and, and sort of jigsaw together the, the calendar in a way that really would make sense. Just two closing thoughts, a couple of closing thoughts. Um, Lionel, you talked about the sort of novelty events. I can tell you that, um, again, you know, you can put as many sort of disclaimers as you want on this. However, uh, at the finish of the Serenissima Gravel, I've rarely seen riders come over the line looking so exhilarated 
um, looking uh, sort of was surprised at how much fun they'd had and how also how difficult it was, how intense it was. Unfortunately, with gravel racing, it doesn't always translate into an, a brilliant spectacle um, as far as the television is concerned. We talked about that in relation to the UCI World Gravel Championships, that once the positions are fixed, then you don't necessarily get that much movement. But it, that was really refreshing. Um, you know, you heard in the in the montage there, Mark Donovan, who, you know, sort of showed up in the morning, first time on his Team Scott gravel bike, didn't really know whether it was going to be suited to the course. And he came over the line and he was wide-eyed with sort of excitement and exhaustion. And that was that was nice to see. Um, just a couple of other things from that day, a couple of other vignettes that sort of <laughs> exemplify, maybe highlight a couple of the issues um, with that race and with the, the, the four races. It is there is definitely a sense of sort of end of season. There's a deep mob happiness on the part of some riders. Some riders aren't that motivated for some aspects of well, for example, those um, three races. Um, I can tell you that about 15 minutes after the start of the Serenissima Gravel, um, which was four laps of I think a 38 kilometer loop around Cittadella, um, Brent Van Moore of Lotto Destiny was in a bar um, having a glass of wine. Um, 15 minutes after the start um i'm sure he drank in moderation and he's had a long season he's had a good season so we can forgive him that and you know there were a few few teams and riders who were sort of un- unabashedly making up the numbers which you know is is fine and um, also wait just until po- jumbo visma find out about this i mean they're gonna yeah. be absolutely furious but i mean it's not yeah. it's not uh, mario cipollini stopping for a pizza though is it but uh, no. but no. it's inspired by <laughs> no. the race organizer isn't it it's good life isn't it yeah well um the veneto i mean veneto famous for its aperitifs of course and and also just on the point about the audience and the age of the audience at the at the at races in italy in general um at the serenissima gravel there wasn't a live broadcast that day um however i went out to the finish line with some colleagues and as we were waiting for the vermish brothers non-brothers actually uh, the vermish is to come in um my attention was sort of drawn to an elder gentleman just on the other side of the barriers with an old bike and old to replica jersey and he was what he was watching on his mobile phone and sort of craned my neck to look over his shoulder and he was sort of offering a running commentary of what was happening in the race which of course seemed curious to me because I knew the race wasn't being broadcast and unfortunately he was watching the Giro del Veneto from a few days earlier convinced that this was the race that was about to that was about to arrive in Cittadella unfortunately I had to put him out of his misery but um, yes um, certainly very popular still with a certain demographic in Italy but it's not necessarily the demographic that people Pozzato is targeting The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Well, chaps, it is the end of the season. It really is the end of the season. We can say that now, can't we? Um, The Racing Europe has finished. The Racing in Asia has finished. Although there's still a a Tour de France criterion, Saitama criterion. Singapore. There's also the UCI Track Champions League starting this weekend as well. First of five rounds Mm. in Mallorca that you better watch on the telly. Yes, you had better watch that. Um, Rob, Lionel, thoughts will start to turn are already turning certainly some teams are already preparing for 2024 there are 
training camps. They're not really training camps, are they? They're sort of, um, how would you describe nights them? Nights out, get-togethers. Night, nights out. A bonding, um, team bonding there sessions. There you go. Team bonding sessions. People get Bike summoned. Fitting. Bike yeah, fitting, bike fitting, kind of sort of three or four day, three or four day um, bonding sessions, bike fitting sessions that take place at this time of year. Cor- um, corporate however, indoctrination. I don't know. I don't know what goes yes. on. Whatever goes on. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, there are some teams and there are, well, there are lots of teams, in fact, in the World Tour even and certainly uh, in the lower two tiers of professional cycling who don't know what their lineup is going to be in 2024 because they still have some recruiting to do. And we've heard a lot about this in recent weeks. The smooted Yumbo Sudal quick step merger that added another layer of indecision, confusion, uncertainty. And we keep hearing, chaps, I keep hearing about riders, particularly experienced riders, I would say, um, sort of 30-ish, 31, 32 years of age who have been stalwarts in the peloton for a long time who have found themselves without any kind of contract um, for next year and it is well we're getting towards the end of October and a lot of them understandably understandably well they're surprised and they're starting to panic Um, at the weekend there were a couple in particular that well most people know about Domenico Pozzovivo who how old is he now Rob 41 The Israel Premier Tech climber, former Giro d'Italia stage winner, of course, had an illustrious career. Um, he didn't know, doesn't know, you heard in the in the package from the Veneto races, um, doesn't know whether he's going to get a contract next year. There was another one who retired on Sunday morning, Manuele Boado, who'd sort of taken the decision to retire because he couldn't find a contract um, and he didn't want to ride at any price. But I've heard so many sort of surprising names over the last few days. Chaps, Ed Valboasenhagen doesn't have a contract, I understand, for next year. Um, Christian Sparagli, um, a couple more at the, the Veneto races, though. Uh, Emmanuel Gebregzavir of Little Trek. And one we're going to hear from in just a second, um, Skarbu Gamay, the Ethiopian rider who... Well, he's 32 years of age. He's been at what was Mitchelton Scott. It's now Jaco Alula for five seasons. And, well, chaps, I was quite surprised. Well, I am quite surprised that Scarbu hasn't managed to find a deal as yet. I mean, this is a guy, I don't know how many listeners have um, or are familiar with, listened to the podcast that Mitch Docker did with Scarbu, Life in the Peloton, a couple of years ago. It was in June 2021. If you haven't listened to it, I, I really recommend it because it's, well, it, it's an incredible story of, it's a it's sort of rags to rich, riches story, but that doesn't do it justice. Scarbu grew up with uh, in a house with 10 siblings um also nine siblings a house of family of 12 they lived in two rooms he had to share a bed with his three sisters and somehow and he tells the story in mitch's podcast he made it to the world tour one of the great sort of journeys uh, stories of triumphing over adversity that we've we've heard in professional cycling and he he realized his dream of making it to the start of the Tour de France. He was on the start line of the 2016 Tour de France with tears in his eyes and thinking back um, at the journey it taken to get to that point. And Scarbu finds himself now um, without a contract. Chaps, before we hear from Scarbu, I would preface this um, 
conversation, what you're about to hear, which I'm sure, I'm sure will, well, will really resonate with a lot of people and they'll feel a lot of sympathy for Scarboo. And that's not necessarily the reason why we're why I've chosen him or we've chosen to speak to him. There are a lot of riders who would be able to make a very passionate case for them to still have a job, have a contract in the world. And I, I see this, guys, I mean, you will as well. Every year you see on Twitter, um, it, 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 it's, it, it is sort of announced or, or, or people become aware of the fact that a rider of a certain nationality has not got a contract for next year. And everyone sort of weighs in with their sympathy and their and, and and sort of arguing that oh this is a, a huge injustice this guy really I mean a team must pick this guy up and um, it's it would be an absolute disgrace if he doesn't get a contract I, that's not what the, the purpose of us hearing from Scarboo is and um, it's more I think I hope um so that the listeners can sort of appreciate how dramatic this situation can be for any rider. Um, and all of these riders had dreams and have dreams at some point. I think Scarborough is kind of unique in a way, certainly unique in terms of his story. He's certainly unique in the passion that he has brought to his career and the passion um, which drives him to want to carry on. Um, but as I say, it's it's a, a scenario, it's a situation that is not unique to him. So anyway, chaps, let's hear from Scarborough now and then well we'll we'll discuss what we do here so yeah th- this year i i i really uh, started uh, really well with uh, with everything with the preparation and uh, aiming to do uh, juro and uh, with the team and was i was really uh, fully focused and i've been i've been always you know working uh, so hard but uh, yeah the, i feel like this year i've been really uh, doing the right training and the right nutrition and everything and I really uh, I was really thinking like I can be uh, really good and I, I had really good season I believe but yeah uh, now I just come all the way uh, to especially after September I always speaking to myself what I went wrong and what's I have done mistake because I ended up without uh, contract and I'm still I don't know where to go next year and uh when I go back to myself, like I, I believe I have done everything. And for me, it's like, I always want to be the best and good domestic rider in my team and to be a supporter and to be everywhere, uh, the, whatever the team asking me to be. And I've been helping in different train uh, in my team. And I always uh, handle a lot of loads, uh, a lot of works I cover and I can come back the next day and I can do it. That's that's my best quality, you know, as a cyclist. And I've been really working on that because, uh, you know, sometimes you speak to yourself like I can, sometimes I can make a result or I can be also good domestic and I can do cover a lot of jobs that I was choosing. I, I said to myself, like I can do really good domestic and I can be also on the breakaway and make uh, hunting for result. But beside that, I can do also a lot of job for the team. And I've been doing that and I've been really working hard for that. But yeah, now I ended up uh, without a contract uh, for next year, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm really shocked, and I'm still I still didn't give up really because I have a dream, and I always uh, thinking that I can be good to go in the in the Grand Tour and to to make get the right breakaway and to have a good result and to make to chase my dream. That's how I always feel it, you know. I always believe in that dream Scarbu we spoke a couple of times last week and you told me and it's obvious and anyone would be stressed in this situation Um, I thought about 
a time, I think it was six years ago, 2017, I have memories of you being in a similar situation at the, it was the Vuelta, I think it was the 2017 Vuelta and you were with Lamprey at the time. And I remember asking you um, about your situation and you, you sort of replied with that big smile that you always reply with, but you said, look, I've already changed my family's life and if it has to end here, it has to has to end here and so be it. Now, you're, it, it sounds as though you're in a diff- your frame of mind is, is different now and, you know, your family has, well, you have changed your family's life. You've changed it even more in the last three or four years because your family has now moved over to Girona. But, but what, what else has changed? Why then would you have been not okay with um, no longer being a pro, but um, you would have been more sort of philosophical and now you feel as though it would shatter your dream? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. You you have good memory, actually. Man. <laughs> you remember, but yeah, you brings me back. Yeah, it was it was in Volta, 2016. Uh, Lampra was uh, last year of. Uh, they were ended up that contract uh, with. 16, uh, yeah, yeah, they're not going to continue. 16, so yeah. 17 was uh, the team was not exist. Yeah, and was in Volta. So, yeah, I was I was uh, I didn't know where to go, and in that time uh, because when I start cycling, I. It, I was chasing to do a Tour de France. Tour de France was my dream to do. So there was nothing else for me. And I was chasing it really like every single day and to, to make it happen to, to ride the Tour. And in that year, Tour de France 16, I did Tour de France. My dream come true that year. And mm. and I remember I remember I said to to my wife uh, now, like she was my girlfriend in that time. And and I said to her, if, if she was my biggest supporter since we we know since uh, she, we were a junior and i i said her i want to do tour de france and she always said yes i'm sure you will do it i said her if i will do tour de france i will i will marry you that was the promise <laughs> that i had that's my real story you know and yeah. and in tour de france i did it and i do i followed the culture i sent my family to her family to ask for her to marry her to marry her you know that's the culture yeah. we have it different in ethiopia and during the tour i did that and in september in Volta, in October, I already I will get married. I had planned to immediately after Volta, I will get married her and already change my life. So okay. that was the situation I am. And because my dream was to do Tour de France. And that was just for me, it was if I was stopped in that time, ended up without contract. To tell you honestly, I was that smile. I was that happy. And that's Sagabu was there and he has a dream. He achieved it. He didn't have another dream in that time. And since that, I get contract from Bahrain was uh, then continue. And I, I'm, I'm a guy, I if I have a dream, if I have a goal, I have to chase it. That, that's mm. because I don't know it's, if it's everyone, but me, I have to have something in front of me to chase yeah. to 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 chase it, you know. And I always believe in it. I always feel it. So since that, I dream. I I, I create a dream that I want to do. I want to win Grand Tour stage because. So in that time, I said, "What now? I have achieved it. I did Tour de France and." Nobody, everybody was telling me it's 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 long way. It's it's you're not gonna make it because in Ethiopia when I said I want to do Tour de France, everybody was laughing on me, and now yeah. I, I said I will do it because I never give up. For me, after the what I have done is like I said, what's next? What can I do more? And I said to myself, I discussed to myself, and I said, okay, I want to win stage Grand Tour, especially in Tour de France. I want to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. I want to win. That's my dream. 
and and I still feel that I still that's that's drives me that keeps me that's my my dream now and when I say it, my dream is I always feel it you know sometimes that Danny when when I I said I have a dream I I always think it's already happened because sometimes I just speaking to myself how I will celebrate what I will yeah. say in the interview I never thinking about crossing the line or attacking it's a, it just it's just like happening in my mind and sometimes I cry really this is just happening because this is drives me to keep going this is drives me and also physically I feel like I'm getting better also this is another yeah. motivation for me because it's I, I I can handle a lot of fatigue it, it become much easier now like to handle the load yeah because of maybe the age but mentally I'm really hungry and physically I am I'm, I'm really good you know so so it's it's this kind of things it's, it's it drives me and I I still like I said I still don't believe why why this happened to me why I am not achieving my dream why why I'm ended up without contract it just I have these questions to me to myself because I have done everything I worked so hard you know last year I have built a gym in my home spending some money because i'm not i'm not a rich guy but i i i, mm. I really spent so much money to invest to, yeah. in myself just to to get better you know and to go to see physios and massages i have never done this before i always uh, doing my job but not 100 percent. it i was just tried to do more and more because of to get better and better and cycling is getting difficult so i was gonna say Scarbu, you you've had to do that because the level since when you turned professional you know the the guys yes. at the top have got better but the floor has also risen um the, the worst guys yes. in the peloton are much better than they were 10 years ago 100 percent, i agree 100 percent. so if it's even if it's more so it's like the sacrifice have to be more you know and for me for me you know i am from africa i from ethiopia i know where i come from what kind of mentality i had and I'm always keen to learn, and I it takes me so much time to learn, really, because I wish I knew uh, something that what I know now. Because as a cyclist, the young guys of, of also in my generation, they were with more knowledge in the peloton, but I was with less knowledge, and it's like that makes me slower to learn. And now this is the time for me. I learn a lot, a lot, and I could do better, you know. Uh, so mm. this is for me. It's hard to see that I struggle because. I'm not. I don't see it, my situation as the same as a guy that he's 30, 32 years old from Europe or from someone because we are in different situation where we come. I I, I know nothing. I figured out a lot by myself. Hmm. You know what? By my just doing mistakes, doing mistake and over mistake. I was learning from my mistake and ended up now. So that that also inspired me and drives me to go better and and to to do more because. I ended up now, wow, I know this. This is what it works for me. This is not working. I was doing this mistake. I was doing, there is so much I can, I can say, if you put us with other rider from Europe, <laughs> I will, I will lead him like a thousand to zero by just doing mistake. Trust me, because <laughs> that's my, that, no, that's the reality. That's a lot of African riders also struggle, but me, I, I will, I just, I just, that's what it is. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't have the opportunity to learn when I was, I didn't have good education when I was young. That helps coming with less knowledge, less history. I didn't know Juro was exist since 2011. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. there's a lot of races I discovered when I come to Europe. So that's, that means to me is like, just there's so much things in cycling that was happening. So, and also the best thing, the best thing I learned in my career, I think I will say, is just how, 
kind, what kind of training and what kind of nutrition is good for me. This is, yeah. I figured out like the last two years, like what's the best for me to be a best, you know, that, that, that kind of, because I was doing a lot of mistakes. Everything I was doing is too much for me because I was so motivated. I was always driving myself really like hard mm. and ended up not performing better. Now I try to do less and more quality and I just know what, what kind of nutrition is good, what kind of training is good. I just figured out the last few years and this is for me is time to shine and to get better. And, and it's one thing also I want to mention. I had a dinner with Haile Gabriel back in time the runner in Ethiopia and yeah. uh, he, we were talking about the age and everything and he said to me like I was like telling him 30 something it's a cycling where the people stop 32, 34 and he said to me man that's where we go faster yeah, yeah, physically if you are mentally that's where you go faster because don't don't follow the other guys like western people and please look to us look to me look keep Chogi and he was he told me that he stuck in my mind like He's right, you know. Mm -hmm. We we have different anything, whatever. I don't care, but it just we get faster also on that. So that's that drives me. That words we talk a lot, and he said to me, we get faster when you get older. Trust me. The last two years I saw it like, wow, like I can feel it. The fatigue and everything. I can handle how I handle it, and also maybe the mistakes is less. And the, what I say, like the nutrition and everything's better. You know, that's also for sure. It helps, but physically I can feel it. So. If you go mentally, if you are hungry mentally, you get better for sure. So that's what I believe also. So this is drives me. I have to, I have to go, you know, like I, it just, it just don't have to be ended now. Like well, I need the opportunity really. Well, Scarbo, I think another thing that you would definitely bring to a team is your passion and the power of your story, which people can, well, people can certainly hear your passion um, when you speak and I'm sure that has been a very positive influence in the teams you have been in Scarba I just wanted to ask you one thing um, I've or when people have referred to your situation and though the situation as well of um, a couple of other African riders at the moment Maui Kudus and um, Amanuel Gabriel Xavier I, I apologise for my pronunciation um, <laughs> th those two guys are also out of contract um, and there may be other African riders out of contract contract um, at the end of this year that I'm not aware of but people always wonder about the administrative issues that we've heard about in the yeah. past with visas and so on and so forth sure. now as far as I remember you haven't had maybe the same issues as the Eritrean riders but just tell us is, is that a factor and do you think that teams consider this yes sure sure I mean it, it, you you know you don't have a miss any races or like with the especially how stressed they are and there is there is a teams that they the teams they don't want to see that that problem they don't want to face that problem they don't have someone to do on that job you know so mm -hmm. that's this is big issue this is something also we 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 really like as an African we have to work on it because for me I've been in, in the pro level it's just that's what I learned it's like you have to do that stuff by yourself and mm. because the team they don't want to face that problem so if there is a problem if they have the problem with the visa because you cannot go every three months to the embassy and ask and yeah. say to the team and bring the invitation later and there's so much things to that that so it's, it's it is big problem that's why I in 2016 I moved to Girona I said no way I don't want to do it like I don't want to do it every three months to ask a visa in different embassy because I was so tired on it uh, and yeah. it was wasn't good also for the team uh, so I was lucky enough I survived it and now I am residency in, in Spain and uh, 
yeah, uh, I, I, I don't have problem since yeah, eight, seven years uh, with the visa because I'm resisted here and I bring my family with, uh, living with me. So, yeah, uh, in my case, I don't have any problem. In the uh, others' case, I'm not sure. I cannot yeah. say, but it's a problem. It's a, it's really big problem for sure because uh, in cycling, it's, there is so much uh, stress already. They are all full book, like with with the with the organization and with the yeah. preparing the races is everybody's busy there is no one like who has time to, yeah. to do extra work for a visa and helping that, that that kind of stuff so this is also in the future that i really work on uh, because for me it's uh, after the end of my career also i don't want to leave uh, the sport i always uh, look back and help african riders I, I really wanted that to do in my future also because this is a thing also I want to fix. There, there must be there must be a way to fix this this problem because otherwise, it's 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 not gonna be good. It's gonna be difficult for a lot of African either whatever talent you have. I don't know how we're gonna fix it, but we have to fix that. And I would love to do something on that for sure. Especially especially I really believe with our story. Like for me, it's like. I've been I've been guiding so many kids, so many younger riders. I've been working like, for example, in Girona, I do training with Ben Healy and uh, Tom Clark is out of now with the injury, but uh, do you know him? The yeah, EF now yeah, the, he no. signed uh, Lucas yeah. Norica. He yeah. he's from Trinity. Yeah, he's no. gonna go next year. They they learn a lot from me, you know, like with yeah. my story, with my life, uh, what they have to do, and I, when I I share them about my dream. We, I don't even know how to get to Europe, but I had a dream and all this kind of stuff. I was, they said, wow, it's like, we, we, we don't dream that big. That's what I hear from them. And I was the first, one of the first African riders in the pro peloton, you know, it's like, yeah. it just, we come from nowhere. It's about dreaming, about history. It's because history lives forever. You know, we're yeah. going to die. It's yeah. the one moment. <laughs> yeah. We're going to leave the money, you know, yeah. but history will live forever. And it, it just, it just, Kids, when I hear kids in the TV, we want to be like Zagabu. That's mm. that's that's what I have done. I don't want to appreciate myself, but it's good because I, I as a kid, I don't. I, I, there was no one. I will say I want to be like this guy. No, no. It just in Ethiopia, there was no one. You know, mm. we you know we don't even dream it. It's just you don't even think it to go. Mm. So it's like when you see kids in Eritrea, you they want to be like. Daniel Takalahamon, yeah. like Binia, like myself in Ethiopia. It just, can you imagine how much we inspire? We don't even know what we're doing. So for me, when I hear kids in Ethiopia also, it's just, we will create more winners for sure because that's, that makes me to keep going, to keep kids dreaming big. You know, it's just uh, already half done because we see Binia already coming and we will see more kids will come, you know. Yeah. Uh, we are already have, have some good numbers or good talented in the world tour now we also from ethiopia we 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 won't see them more because the, we already have an impact so this is drives me really but cycling it just changes my life and to, when you change your life and you inspire kids oh man it just it gives you something sensation it's just i don't know lionel hard not to be moved by that um you know scarbu is a guy again re- thinking back that podcast he did with Mitch in 2021, you know, he talked about when he was growing up having one euro, you know, his, for his family having the equivalent of one euro a day would have been a lot of money. He dreamed, he thought that if one day he ever got to earn 10,000 euros, he would be a, 
a rich man and he would be um, a happy man and all of his hopes and dreams and wishes would have come true. Yeah, and that episode you mentioned, Daniel, Mitch Docker's Life in the Peloton, that was when we were collaborating with Mitch. And so that episode is on our feed. I'll actually put a link to that in our show notes. Uh, It's about an hour and a half long and it's a real, I mean, I remember at the time listening with my kind of jaw opening wider, really. I had no real sense of where Scarborough came from and what he'd overcome just to get on a bike, let alone get to Europe and and make it in the world tour i suppose uh, you know hearing his story it's impossible not to feel um, that sense of emotion that sense of you know the the last chance saloon uh, if he doesn't get a contract that that would be the certainly the world tour dream would would be at an end um, but it's something that comes to every rider and i'm not being sort of um, heartless about it but you know there's a real kind of ruthlessness to the the way the world tour operates and i think sometimes you know this thing of an experienced rider who everybody knows is you know they know what they're about they know what they can deliver they know what they can do that can work both ways because you know there is a kind of uh, I don't want to say fetishization about the, the, the young riders because that's not the not the right word, so I won't say well, that. There has but, been over the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah it, it, has it, been. The, the new and the young and the unproven and the kind of the especially with the with the data that's available, the kind of the potential, this 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 excitement of of um, of, of unrealized potential or riders that that are clearly going to be um, moldable. Uh, malleable into a world tour pro that that is the trend at the moment and so riders that are the wrong side of 30 are increasingly vulnerable and when you look at um Gamay and his recent uh seasons I mean he hasn't ridden a grand tour since the 2020 welter that's quite a long stretch for a, a rider not to get a start in any of the the grand tours and so it's it's just increasingly difficult especially when I mean, a rider like Edvald Bosenhagen, who you mentioned, Daniel, you know, there was the suggestion that DSM might be a possibility. I think the the door was kind of politely closed uh, on Bosenhagen by Uno X as well, so that there's not a space for him there. And I think there's just a sense of, um, you know, the, the rider, the younger riders offer perhaps uh, more in terms of... Um, potential than the riders who will be solid they've still you know by the numbers or by the experience and what they can bring to a team they could certainly have a place but they've kind of had their their time in in a spot and yeah it's a it's a harsh um phase for any rider to reach i, th- I think we should also say that to Scarbo's great credit there he bears no malice towards jaco alula um there was no there's no sort of hint of in of well, him feeling that he's the the victim of any injustice on their part. In fact, you know, the general manager at Jaco Alula, Brent Copeland, is someone who Scarbu credits or has credited publicly in the past. He gave him an opportunity um, to join Lamprey a few years ago. He's also given him the opportunity to to stay at Jaco Alula for five years. But uh, and you know that's a team you can't sort of point the finger at any individual team. You should re-sign this guy, Jaco Alula. Uh, we well, we talked about them re-signing Caleb Ewan. You know their priorities might shift, and um, and as you say, Lionel, it's brutal and it's fickle as well. It's a it's a fickle world, and often it's intangibles. It's not things you can see. 
um, on pro cycling stats or first cycling um, that will determine ultimately whether um, they do get that last contract or, or not. In Scarbu's case, personally, if I was a team manager and I actually asked him off mic, has a team ever asked you to sort of get up in front of the other riders and tell them your story? Because it, to me, it would be it, it would be powerful and it would be inspirational. He said there was a plan to do that, or for Trek when he was there, for them to film some kind of documentary, um, which um, was going to um, allow him to do that. It didn't happen in the end because he moved teams. But um, you know, he's someone who definitely brings an energy which I th- I think goes beyond what he can also offer on the road. You know, he's uh, well, the the Eritrean rider Emmanuel Gebrezabir. For example, uh, he's a very, very strong rider. We've all seen him in big races at the front of of big races, and it's mystifying that someone like him hasn't got a contract. Someone like him, I, I know he's quite timid, he's quite shy, and there are Scarby touched as well there on the administrative problems that African riders have faced. It would be a, a tragedy if, if someone was to decide that um, someone like Gebre Zabir wasn't a good option because um, maybe he, he struggles with the, the language spoken in that team or because of the administrative hoops that they have to go through to get him to races. There's a heck of a lot more to consider, isn't there, beyond the numbers and the results and whether it's someone's personality, their, their language skills, or something we often don't think about, you know, the, the visas and the travel and all that sort of stuff. Um it certainly all illustrates why we shouldn't jump to conclusions when decisions are taken, but it also, um, you know, illustrates too why riding is harder for a lot of different riders. You know, it's very different coming from a cycling hotline like, like Flanders and, and coming from Ethiopia in terms of just the fact that you have to travel yourself, you have to leave your family behind or you have to uproot them. There's all sorts of different things and just illustrates that, you know, it's just it's just unfair sometimes, isn't it? As much as, uh, as, much as we'd like everybody to have the same base and opportunity. But it would be very, very nice if Scarbo in particular, with his story, could be picked up by somebody next year. And I'm sure on the athletic side, he's got a lot to give. I mean, this is a guy that came on the scene and, you know, he was solid against the clock, wasn't he? He was good in breakaways. He was good at chasing yeah. down breakaways. I mean, Rob, you obviously, well, you watch more cycling even than, than Lionel and I. Um, I. I was talking to a couple of riders at the weekend just about the difficulty for us as journalists in assessing domestiques. And, uh, you know, I, I was talking to Mateo Sobrero, actually, the Jaco Alula um, rider who's going to Bora Hansgrohe. And we were talking about Scarbu's situation. And I said, look, honestly, we as journalists find it very difficult to assess domestiques because yes we see them on the front or not on the front but that's not really a good gauge of how they are for the other sort of three hours of the race and whether they're doing their duties or not but just um from your commentary um Gabriel Zabir, Skarbu, Gamay and Mehawi Kudus is another one uh, EF Education Easy Post who um, doesn't have a contract for next year and I think all three of those will surprise people very much I was surprised to learn certainly that Kudus didn't have a contract I think you had that conversation with me last week and I'm you what? you're joking you're talking about a winner a winner who's been very close to winning mountain stages in Grand Tours a winner who's had GC success in a race that's grown in the last few years in um, to Rwanda for example a man who's supported 
people in the mountains as sort of the last deluxe domestic. He's done a lot of different jobs. Um, Emmanuel Gebrek Xavier is a different rider. He's a versatile rider, more of a sort of ruler, stroke classic guy who can climb a little bit as well. And he's been very good at both a support role, particularly Vincenzo Nibali's last year for Trek. He was excellent for him, I thought, there. He's been given his opportunities in breakaways when they haven't had a leader. Last year, he was attacking almost on a daily basis, wasn't he, for the Giro d'Italia? And going back to Scaburgo Mai, it's funny, us as commentators, we, you know, we don't do every single race. And I don't seem to have crossed paths too much with Scaburgo Mai in the last couple of years. I've been on more of a Grand Tour and sort of Northern Classics beat. And if he's been going to different races, but I remember from his early days, watching him in Grand Tours, he just seemed to be doing a job for his teammates all the time and again there's it's a good point you make that about us trying to examine what's difficult and I often try to ask the questions of the people I'm commentating with and what makes and, and a lot of the guys actually say you know there's so many things that people can do for you that really the cameras don't pick up whether it's going to get a bottle at the right time whether it's putting you in the position here at a certain point before a certain climb a left or a right turn whether it's you know giving you a kick up the backside when you need one if you're not having a good day. That can be in the bedroom at night as well. That could be at the dinner table. There's all sorts of things that are happening there. You know, give you a G up when you're down, all sorts of things. Um, and it's very, very difficult to quantify. And and it is going to be subjective. You know, people, it, it's something that is, as much as we want it to be fair, it, it never is going to be like that. And it's the case in all works of life, isn't it? It is, it is. Chaps... I think, Lionel, unless you'd like to add something. Uh, no, I, we were going to wrap up. I mean, the season we're is at an end, up. but we're already looking ahead at next season, aren't we? Next week, the Tour de France and the Tour de France fam routes will be unveiled officially by ASO. Quite a lot of rumours out there already. Um, I have said it many times in the past, I don't like to see the route spoiled for me in advance. Uh, I feel it's a bit like... Uh, accidentally seeing all my Christmas presents before I do, Lionel, because <sighs> I have to book my hotel. Well, I so mean, I have a very strong vested interest. Yeah, in Yeah, unfortunately, I've seen both the routes, um, and uh, yeah, so the the big reveal will be less dramatic for me next week. But there's some there's some treats in store, isn't there, at the Tour de France 2024, mm. and the Tour de France mm. Fam uh, 2021 20, Benz to finish with. Uh, Apparently. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> well, chaps, on that um, enigmatic, tantalising note, I think that does conclude this week's podcast. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you. And thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you. Sorry for spoiling Christmas, everyone. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burnett.